All right, so we're in this series called How to Have a Great Life, and I don't know what your Thanksgiving was like. How many of you had, you had relatives at your house? Just give me a hand raise on that. Okay, good. How many of you had a dysfunctional moment? Uh, come on. Well, be honest. I mean, everybody's family is messed up, so I know better. We all have that kind of stuff. So we had the relatives at my house, my family, not Lori, so they're off the hook, um, and my when, I'm not going to name the person. I'll just say it was a female person. One of the people who do not live in my home came up to me, and she said, hey, Doug, you're a pastor, so what do you want to talk about? She says, what are you teaching on lately? And I said, we're teaching on how to, a series called How to Have a Great Funeral. And she said, if that happened at my church, I wouldn't show up until that series was over. Right? And I'm like, okay, that was a nice conversation. And I get it. I get it, you know, I'm, she wouldn't show up again. So here's the thing. I'm so glad to see you guys here. Because <laughs> I know the title of the message, could there be a more depressing series title than How to Have a Great Funeral? But as we've gone through it, I think we see how important this topic is. So we started the series with a message called Good to Go. And this was about, about me and about you, not with each other, but being good with God. So that when the day comes and we, and we go, we're we're ready. And it's an incredibly important. It's the foundation of how to have a life that, that hits on all cylinders. Um, and the most important, it's the foundation of life. So I would say if you have, didn't, if you missed that message, I encourage you to go listen to it. And, um, and I hope something's there that you can embrace. The next week we talked about good to be gone, which is when we die, not us being right with God. Hopefully we have that taken care of. But now it's, we want to leave in such a way that we're good to be gone. We want to have had the right conversations and made the right preparations. It was an extremely practical message, very well received because some of you go, oh, I need to do, and this is nice, and now I, can, I know what to take my next step. So good to be gone is really, really important. We can't just live assuming we're going to be there for everybody else all the time because it comes a day we won't be there anymore. Last week we said it's not how I die because it's how I live. And then today we're going to say I'm not dead yet. So real quickly, um, take a breath. An exhale? All right, so you're ready because you're not dead yet. Apparently you can breathe. That's good. All right, so great funerals, we've said from the beginning, are, mar are not marked by the things that people typically will use them as a metric. People will look at the building and say, wow, what a beautiful place, what a beautiful service that was, what a wonderful funeral. Look how many people came. This must be a great funeral. The flowers are so gorgeous. And how much did you spend on this funeral? Because it looks like it's first class, everything. What a great us. None of those things create a great funeral. Great accomplishments of the person who passed away. Have you ever been to a funeral, by the way, where, where it sounds like they're just going over the resume of things the person did? And, and, and there's nothing to celebrate but, but their accomplishments. And something's cold about that, right? So we've said, hey, none of those things make a great funeral. What makes a great funeral is something deeper, something more personal. So we said great funerals are marked. You'll know you're a great funeral when you experience grief and there's hope, right? When there's gratitude towards God being expressed at the service and when there's an appreciation for a life well lived. Right? And that's the one we're going to talk about today, this well-lived life. How do we live our lives well? Now, I was thinking as I looked at those, I thought this week, I thought, wow, you know what? Those are the things we try to do at every service. First of all, if we do a, a, a funeral service, we always want to appreciate the life of the person who passed away. So we'll have people come up and say, 
what they love most about that person, celebrate their lives. We also always want to express gratitude towards God in that service because every single person, no matter what kind of life they lived, is a creation of God. Right? And so we want to, we want to say, God, thank you for this person. There's almost always something positive about them that we can celebrate. And the last one is we want to give reason to have hope in the midst of our grief at every funeral service. But that's a service. Right? What I'm talking about is how to have a great funeral, which I think is much bigger than just the service itself. So appreciation for a life well lived. Thornton Wilder said, the highest tribute to the dead is not grief, but gratitude. And when I read that, I thought, that's exactly true. Right? If I was on my deathbed, I would, I would much rather hear one of these two statements than the other one. The first one is, I'm going to miss you so much. That's nice, but, but that's like saying it's really going to hurt when you're gone. I get it. But I'm so grateful for having you in my life. It's such a richer statement, right? Yeah, I'm going to miss you, but I'm so grateful I even got to rub shoulders with you. you. There's things that you brought into my life that wouldn't be there if not for you. I appreciate you so much. And that's the heart of what Thornton Wilder was saying. So today, I'm not dead yet. All of us, because we can breathe, we're not dead yet. We're still alive. By the way, if you're a Monty Python fan, I know it's going through your head. Right? You're thinking, I want to go for a walk. <laughs> and I'm not quite dead. I don't want to go down the cart. Right? Those are the same. And if you don't get that humor, I just feel bad for you. <laughs> right? So all of us have two things in common. Every single person in the room, we all have the rest of our lives. Right? I've heard a few little bit, this, you know, Doug, the front part of my life, up to this date I've been this person. And I'm going, yeah, but you have the rest of your life. We all have the rest of our life, and you can't make assumptions about that. We're all different ages. You know, so some of us are thinking, well, that's a long time, and you, we don't know. Some of us are really old, and we think it's a short time, and we're probably right. <laughs> but we all have the rest of our lives. And we also have this in common. We can choose how to live. Right? I don't care about up to now how you've lived. After today, if you say, I want to make a change, you can make a change. You have the rest of your life. You can turn a corner. You're going to need God's help to do it, but you can live a different life than you're living now. I'm counting on it because there's things in my life that I want to see change. Right? So, how do we live well? Um, I think one of the keys to it is revealed to us through a psalm written by David. David in Psalm 39 <coughs> prays a prayer. And it's one of the most, it sounds like it's a depressing prayer, right? Here's what he says. He says, Lord, so now we know he's praying, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered. Remind me how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. For me, that's about, what, three and a half inches. Short life. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. In other words, we're a blink of God's eyes as far as time goes. We are merely moving shadows and all of our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. Now let me translate what I think David is actually praying. God, remind me that I live really close to the graveyard. Remind me that that there's a stone out there that's going to have my name on it someday. Right? That there's a stone. And by the way, I know some of you are going to be cremated. See, I get pushback, right? 
you're going to be cremated. I'm not going to have a stone dug. I'm not going to be in the graveyard. Good for you. You're still going to be gone. And they still might make a plaque, right? But there's a stone out there. So just go with the tradition for a moment. There's a stone out there that someday is going to have my name on it. There's a piece of granite with nothing on it. And someday, very likely, somebody's going to put your name at the top of it. And underneath that, this is David's prayer. Make me aware of this. Underneath that, there's going to be a date of birth and a date of death. And underneath that, there may be something meaningful or pithy written underneath it. Those are called epitaphs. My daughter was impressed that I could say the word epitaph. She said that last night. So I'm, I'm doing well. All right, so epitaphs are great. Have you ever looked at people's epitaphs? Have you ever walked through a graveyard and seen them? Google epitaph. It's, you can see some really unique things. So let me just show a few of them to you. This is the gravestone of Robert Clay Allison. You're already reading. He never killed a man that did not need killing. So I had to, I had to Google him to see who he was, right? Well, he was a gun, gunslinger, right? He was a shooting guy. And, and what they liked about him was most of the people that he shot, it sounds like they went up to him and go, yep, that guy needed to be dead. You know, that guy, he lived a life. He was judge and jury and executioner, literally, but I just think it's kind of funny. I like this one, too. Here lies John Yeast, pardon me for not rising. A dad joke on a headstone. How awesome is that, right? Merv Griffins, uh, I will not be right back after this message. <laughs> Younger people don't even, Merv Griffin. Uh, Marvin Huff, right? Inclined to mischief. I just, I don't, I hope that wasn't his wife that wrote that, you know? Maybe his kids or something. The next one is my hero. Raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom and still there was love. And the next one, I don't know whether it's really great or really sad. Here's what it says. This man lived. Right? So it could be they just found some bones and they go, ah, what can we say about this guy? Okay, this man lived. Or it could be this man lived. He really lived. You can't tell just from the epitaph. Here's the point. We all someday will have a stone or maybe a memorial. You know, if there's someone who decides they want to do that for us, our name will probably be on it, the date of our birth, the date of our death, maybe some kind of epitaph. Now, that sounds pretty safe because it's out there somewhere. Where it gets more courageous is when you start thinking about your own. Right? Out there somewhere right now is probably some kind of slab material that someday someone's going to write the name Doug Mathers on there. And if you're new, that's my name. And it's creepy to do that put it on there to think about it and they'll put the date of my birth on there you should be taking notes that's my birthday come on <laughs> it's coming up in like two months what's wrong with you people all right the date of my birth will be on there and then the date of my death and this is I'm about to cross a line right because I thought, well what date do I put down for my death you know, just to give you an example and and I thought well I'm gonna be in I'm gonna put it out November first, 2018, I'll be 120 years old, and only if Mayo gets really, really advanced in their science am I going to live that long, and I'll wish I was dead at, at 120, but it's just because I didn't want to predict my own death and then see it go by, you know, like back to the future kind of, anyway, so, so there it is. Now, when you look at that, the name, birth, date of birth, date of death, what's the most important thing on there? 
It's the dash. It's the dash. We've talked about this before. Right? It's the dash. Everything else is just data. But the dash is different. The dash is every breath my lungs will take. Right? Every beat my heart will produce. It's every thought I will ever think. And all it's going to get is a dash. But all of my life, everything is in that dash. Now let's reread that psalm again. Psalm 39, 4 through 7. Just, let's just read the first verse. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. I want to be aware of how brief my time will be. Remind me that my days are numbered. How fleeting my, my life is. You know what he's saying? God, make me dash aware. I want to live with an awareness that all I have is a dash that I live next door to the grave, that there's a stone out there. Someday my name will be on there. My life is as wide as my hand. I'm just a breath to you. Right. Why does he want that? Why does he want to live with that awareness? And the, 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 the answer is, I think, is because when you have the awareness, it makes a difference between being alive and living. It could be the difference between this man lived and he really lived, or this woman lived, and she really lived. You know what being dash aware does? It creates focus. And without focus, I promise you, you cannot live a well-lived life. We have, to, we have to be aware of what we're trying to do and living with focus and awareness of how time is going. The Bible says it's a key to that. I'm going to show you some numbers. And they're really important numbers that become popular with Parents of newborns. So here's what's going on. I don't know if you've seen people do this. I know someone in our church is doing this. They're getting marbles, and they're putting them into a container. And, and there's 936 marbles inside this container. Right? And what they each represent is a week of the year. Right? So when you have a newborn... There's actually 936 weeks from birth until they probably leave your home at 18 years old after they graduate. 936. So each week of this newborn's life, this child's life, they take one out and, and put it somewhere else. So they have a sense of, that week just went by. That week with my kids. It's, it's fleeting. It's going. I want to be aware of it. I don't want to have it go by without me paying attention to it. Why? Because I want to focus I want to make sure I'm making the most of it. By the time your child is nine years old, you've lost half your marbles. <laughs> right? There's 468 left. And I'm telling you, there's something about thinking you're halfway in anything that changes your perspective of what's left. Right? So I was a parent. I had nine-year-olds. And you go from from just thinking about a long future to thinking I've only got this much time left with my kids, right? I've only got half the time. And, and believe me, there's, there's times when you're raising kids when you want it to go by quickly. But I think the marbles, being aware how short the time is, will help you not wish away their childhood. You know, the terrible twos should be savored, should be experienced, and there should be a lot of babysitters. When your child gets their driver's license at 16 years old, there's 104 weeks left before they graduate. Just generally speaking. 
right? And yet, guess what? You don't have to drive anymore and chauffeur them everywhere. It'll be wonderful. But you don't get to drive them anymore. And you don't get to have all those conversations in the car. And you don't get to take care of them the same way you used to. And at that point, you have 26 weeks of summertime vacation left. And they won't want to spend all that time with you. You don't get to have it. And you'll start thinking about time completely differently when you go, I've only got two summers left where they're not preoccupied with school and work and all those things. And you start to hold a little tighter. And they're going, I can't wait to get out of here. So they're pushing away. Right? And you're still pulling those marbles out one at a time. I think it's an incredibly well-thought-out discipline to have the marbles. And it's what, it's what David's praying on. He's not praying about raising our kids. He's praying of our lives. God, help me to be aware of each passing week. Help me to be aware of how few marbles there probably really are and how fast those marbles go by. Because if I'm aware of it, I can live a more focused life. And I may be able to change what's on my epitaph. Right? Because when I look at the part I haven't put up here yet, the epitaph, that's what I want to share with you today. And it's going to be not what I want on my epitaph, but what I hope people could write for an epitaph for my life. What I think is a well-lived life is what I'm going to talk about. I'm just going to talk about three things. Could I talk about four? You bet. Could I talk about five? Absolutely. You'll probably think of other things that I don't include. Pastors are only allowed to have three points. So that's what we're going with today. Here's the first one. I hope they can write he loved. He didn't just live. He loved. Understanding that my days are numbered helps me to be more loving. How do I know that? Well, we just went through Thanksgiving and I told you my family was with, and I love my family, right? I love my family, but it helped me to remember that they'd be leaving soon. The days were numbered that they were going to stay with me because if there was no end to it, loving would be harder because <laughs> we all have a way of challenging each other. We all know what buttons to push. We're all together in that same um, house with nowhere to go. So understanding my time is limited, my number helps me to be more loving. Paul talked about love, and he said some very eloquent things, but really important things. 1 Corinthians 13. I know you heard it at weddings. This is about life, not just weddings. Here's what he wrote. If I could speak all the languages of earth and angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What's he saying? If I was really, really gifted in linguistics, if I was multi, multi, multilingual and heavenly lingual. I could do all of that, speak to anybody anywhere, but I didn't love. It's just a waste. I'm just making noise. He went on. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy and understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I memorized my Bible from beginning to end and I was fluent in theology, deep theology and theological discussion, in fact, I even had the right theology about everything, And if I have faith that could move mountains, but if I did not love others, I would be nothing. This is huge. It means that the smartest person at church, the person who knows the most about the Bible, the person who has the best theology, unless they're loving, ends up being a very lousy, irritating person in the church. Just loud. If I gave everything I had to the poor, even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And then he starts talking about what love requires, what love is. Love is 
patient and kind. Love requires patience and kindness. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Now, when I read those words, I, I, there's a little part of me that goes, ah, oh, but I am. I'm some of those things. Love does not demand its own way, but I do. Love is not irritable, but, but I've been. Love keeps no record of being wrong. It just forgives so freely other people. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. It's a very high bar definition of what, what love is. And it calls us to something more than probably how we're living out our love today. And then Jesus, Jesus said, answered the question, who do we love? Remember someone said, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he goes, the greatest commandment, and you probably know this, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Everything you've got, love God first. And then on the night before he died, he brings his disciples together, his team together, kind of his family together. And he said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love each other the way I've loved you. And when he told people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, he said, that's the greatest commandment. There's another one. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are other others, right? Love each other. That's kind of like family, friends, church. But people outside of that love other others. And people say, who's the neighbor? And he said, well, you know where Samaria is. There's, there's people there that need to be loved. And I know you don't even like them. So this is other than your us. It's them. And then he went on. He just goes, well, let's just raise the bar to the highest level. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. They ask you to carry a pack a mile, carry it too. They ask you for a shirt, give them a couple pieces of clothing. Be generous to your enemies. Love your enemies. And I look at that and I go, oh my goodness, God. This is not my default. You know what my default is when it comes to love? It's me. It's me. Whose comfort am I most worried about? Mine. Who do I go, you know, it's probably time to eat. Me. When I'm hungry and I want something to eat, I'm worried about that. I'm worried about myself all the time because it's not my default to love God first and to love each other and to love others, others and to love my enemies. My default is selfish, self-centered, Doug. Now that's a lousy epitaph, huh? Doug, he was all about Doug on the stone. But if I can focus, if I understand that life is short, it will help me live a focused life. All right, so when I asked you about Thanksgiving and being with your relatives, and some of us just were, there's a good chance that your love was challenged. There's a good chance that there was an irritating moment or two, a moment that required patience and kindness. And, and, and if you could just keep in mind, you know what thought went through my head? My dad was at mine, and he wasn't irritating me too much. But the thought goes through my head, what if it was the last Thanksgiving I get to spend with him? He's 87. I don't know how many marbles are left. Right? And... And that thought made me more patient and more loving. In fact, it 
when we think about how short it is, it helps us to focus on the most important thing. So I hope that's something that could be. No one would, no one would object. That's not true. He didn't love. The next one I'd want is he savored. That one may be a little, love was obvious. I was going, savored, what's that about? Here it is. I want to taste life, not merely live it. I want, I want to savor the things and the people, everything in life. So, do you know how to, I can find out what you savor? I savor kids. Wow. How I can find out most quickly, if you give me your cell phone and I can look at your pictures, I'm going to find out what you're savoring. Right? So, if you grab my phone, you go, wow, there's a picture of um, your kids, Jeremy and Molly. Yeah, because I, I love them. I savor them. And they frustrate me sometimes, too, told, truth be told. But they still make the savor list. Because I know I'm, they're only, you know, also my, my, my dad. There's my 87-year-old dad. There's my two brothers. We just went to a, a wedding together for my nephew. There's my sister, who's younger than I am, right? But I still look younger, right? And then, um, so we were all together. We're never all together anymore. So, hey, we've got to take a picture. Why? Because we've got to savor this. We got to enjoy this moment. After that wedding, Lori and I went to Alexandria and we spent two days with her parents. Right? And we went to a tacky Mexican restaurant and we thought, let's savor this, take a picture. We had the waiter take a picture of us in the restaurant. Right? They're in their 80s. I'm not going to miss an invitation with them because I don't know and I want to savor them and we love them. Right? Now, there's other things. That's family. By the way, aren't you glad I'm not a grandparent? Because if I was a grandparent, we'd be here for another 45 minutes. Looking at that, oh, here's when he took his first step. All right, so um, so other things, weirder things in my in my phone, right? I savor stuff that is weird going on in this church sometimes, <laughs> right? And so you look at that picture and you could name some of the people and that kind of thing, but it's just I, I savor the creativity, I savor the people pouring themselves into it, I savor the music we heard this morning, the people playing. We have a new drummer. How it's a she. How awesome is all of that? I love that, right? I savor cows, right? On my way home, when Lori and I drive home, we have a rural drive to our house out in Orinoco, and we go buy cows. We, most of the, our lives, we've spent more kind of city things. We live out there, and we go buy the cows. We don't take the cows for granted. Every so often, we'll pull over. Not every time. We're not, you know, crazy people. We pull over, we roll down the window, and we start singing to the cows, and they all come from wherever they are to the fence, and they lean into the fence to hear us. I can't get anybody else to lean in to hear me sing. <laughs> right? And there they are. And it's like, I don't want that drive home to become something I'm not paying attention to. I want the drive home. I want to savor the cows. I, I watch the different flowers come up at different seasons. I can't name them yet. But I savor them. If you're a Facebook friend of mine, you're going to see pictures of bird feeders right outside our window. Because... I'm savoring the activity. Do you know that we have to empty that stinking bird feeder within 48 hours every day right now? Those little birds <laughs> eat me out of house and home. All right, so when you take a picture of a sunset, and there's probably a picture of a sunset in your phone, you're savoring the moment and the company and God's creation. That particular sunset was taken over the Sea of Galilee in Israel. And you too can go to Israel. All you have to do is go out and sign up and... Give me money, and you can come with me a year from now to Israel. Seriously, we're going to go to Israel. But that's when that picture was taken, but every sunset. Right? 
There's a picture of just a bunch of you who came over to my house. We cooked hot dogs and marshmallows out of the fire. Right? And I savored that evening. Not the hot dogs in the fire, but the people. It was a chance to be together. If you know me, I, I don't savor cats all that well. Well, there's lots of pictures of dogs in my phone. There are a couple pictures of cats, and they're not, they're alive, they're okay. They're my, they're my phone. But dogs, this is a particular day at uh, Thanksgiving, a couple back when we went to my sister's place, and they had their dogs, my brother's dogs, and we took them all for a big walk, and those dogs just savored the walk. We put them into the back of the truck, and there they are just all, ah, had some great time. This is so awesome, and I just savored that moment. But I did notice that not all the dogs savored the event because I didn't show you the last dog who was not savoring it. <laughs> it's like, get me out of here. You laugh, but some of you, that was you at Thanksgiving. Come on, everybody else is having a good time, and you're thinking, I want out of here. So let me ask you a savoring question. Which one should be savored more? The turkey dinner at Thanksgiving or the make-me-happy meal at McDonald's? Which one should be savored more? Depends on who you're with. That's a really good answer. It's very close to my answer. It's, I want to learn to savor both. I want to learn to savor the food God gives me, the life, whether I'm going by cows or goats, whether my road is bumpy or smooth, whether it's raining or the sun is shining. I want to learn to savor not just the good things, but all of life. I want to touch it, to taste it, to savor it. By the way, I think God set the model for this. We're supposed to savor it. After he, after he created, remember Genesis 1? He created this, and he created that, he created things. And after each time he had this little phase of creation, he backed up and he said, it's good. What was that that God backed up and says it's good? I think it was savoring. He just goes, this is awesome. And look what I did. And it's really, really good. And by the way, if you're a person who does creative things, I hope you have those moments. I hope you back up from it and go, that was good. And it was Thank you, God, for the ability. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I can savor what we just did. You know, I hope you savored your turkey. I hope the person who made it savored it. Right? Not just, hey, here's your turkey. (laughs) Now get out of my house. (laughs) That's not savoring. See, here's the thing. We cannot savor fast. We can eat fast food, but we cannot savor fast. And we don't savor by accident. If we go to default, life is too fast. Everything just comes and goes. We want things to go by quickly sometimes. Anything that has a little bit of pain to it, I can't wait till this is over, I can't wait to get out of it. This isn't totally comfortable. Yeah, I get it. But we can't save her fast. We can't save her by accident. If we live with the graveyard in mind, it will help us to save her each moment. Haven't you ever heard that from people who be like, they got, you have cancer. And they talk to you about, what was it like to be told you have cancer? And they go, you know what? The flowers smelled better. The food tasted better. People mattered more to me. Can I tell you something? The flowers did not change. The people did not change. And life didn't get better. You changed. You started to savor everything because you suddenly realized that life is brief. Let's read from David, Psalm 8. He's savoring in this verse. He says, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, he's talking to God, 
to the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place. By the way, he was a shepherd. How often do you think he saw the night sky? Every night. There were no city lights. Right? Some of us never see the lights except for twice a year when we go to some cabin up north. Right? Every night he saw them. But one night, he's not just looking, he's seeing. He's savoring. When I savor the night sky, when I think about it, and I look at the works of your fingers and I connect those dots, you put the moon in place, you put the stars in place. And I start to think, what are mere mortals? Who am I? That you should think about them. Human beings that you should care for them. You know what he's doing? He's, he's thinking deeper thoughts because he's savoring. And that's what savoring does. It makes you think at another level and feel at another level than when you just fly by or drive by. And I want to taste it. I don't want to merely live it. I don't want to get through life. I want to go through life intentionally. I want to be aware of the marvels as, as they go. I don't want to feel sadness about that. I just want to be aware of it because it's true. And it changes my perspective. So on my epitaph, I would be fine with he loved and he savored and he served. This one might be the hardest one for me. I want to have a servant's heart. The heart of a servant. Bible talks about this all the time. You remember Jesus washing the feet. Paul wrote the same kinds of things he said in Galatians 5. For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your own sinful nature. What's that? That's called my default. Doug, my own sinful nature. Doug, 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 Doug. I'm going to use my freedom to satisfy Doug. Right? He says, don't, use, don't do that. Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Well, what's that look like? Well, after Thanksgiving, I can give you a picture of what it looks like. Right? I, here's one way it could look like. I want to do the dishes when I don't want to do the dishes. By the way, I'll never want to do the dishes. It's not, I don't get any joy out of it. Right? Big, you know what I think when I see a whole big pile of dishes? Why didn't you wash these as you went, Lori? That's a very heartwarming conversation that we have after she's done all that work, right? I want to become the person who does the dishes, not because they want to do the dishes, because they want to serve. I want to be the guy that ate all this and savored it, savored all the people around the table, right? And then gets up and does the dishes without making a big deal about it. Not making a deal about it. Just, just doing them. You know, I mean... You can be a martyr about it, or you can be a servant about it. There's two different ways to do dishes. I learned this when I became a parent, and I told Lori, you know, hey, I babysat the kids today. And she goes, you're their dad. You didn't babysit anybody. You took care of the kids, right? Quit bragging about it. It's your job, right? So the martyr, the difference between a martyr and a servant is the martyr wants to be recognized for the incredible sacrifices they're making. I babysat the kids. I'm doing the dishes. I made a bed this morning. And whatever it is, you just want to make sure that it got scored properly. Right? When you start scoring it, you're not serving anymore. How do I know this? Because I'm an expert at this. Servants are hard to see because when they're really serving, they just do it. And they don't they don't put a flag up. They don't take a selfie of themselves. They just do it. 
I want to become that person. I'm not that person yet. I mean, sometimes I am, but I know there's a long ways to go. I think this is kind of at the heart of what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 9 through 11. He said, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. In other words, giving, recognizing what other people are doing. And then the last one, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. And make sure you get credit. Doesn't say that there. Just to become part of who I am. That's what I mean by heart of a servant. I don't want to serve. I, I want to want to serve. I want it to be normal for me to serve. I want it to be a natural outpouring because on my epitaph someday, somebody's going to put something and I'd be okay with he loved, he savored, he served. So here's the question in the morning. What's stopping me from loving, savoring, and serving? That might be what I have to identify. What stops me from doing it? What gets in my way to become aware of those things? I think I know two of them for me. Speed, and I'm self-absorbed. I live, I talk fast, I know that. I live faster. <laughs> Just next thing, next thing, next thing, go, 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 and, and content all the time, stuff coming in all the time, highly stimulated life. And I'm selfish. I think about me first. Working on it, I'm not the same person I used to be, I'm better than I was. You know, probably halfway there, maybe, I hope. But I'm working on it. I, these are things I want God to change in me. What's stopping you? Here's how we're going to close the service. We're going to go back to Psalm 39, just verse 4. It says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. I'm going to invite you to pray that out loud together. Here's the danger. Churches, when we do stuff like this together out loud, we turn into monotones and we say words we don't necessarily mean and we say them in a ways that certainly sounds like we don't mean them. So I'm going to encourage you to, to pray them and, and, it, and there might be a little bit of a drone noise. I don't know how we can do it without, but I want you to pray them, not just say them. And then when we hit that last sentence, I'm going to finish the prayer for us. And then we can go home and practice it. So let's pray. Lord, my me, remind me my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. God, as I stand before you and as we sit before you, we want to open our hearts to you, to your ways. We ask you to coach and teach us. Show us what love really is. Help us to to carry that mission out for it to become normal for us so that we are not just people who love, but we are loving people. And God, help us to savor. Show us when something is good that we slow down the car. We start to sing about stuff that is everyday stuff, but we have different eyes. Because when we savor, we give thanks. When we savor, we recognize that you're behind it. When we savor... We live more at a deeper level. And God, for myself, I pray you help me be a servant, not just serve. Help us to follow the example of, that you set by not just washing the feet, but by going to that cross.
because you love us. God, help us to become the people you made us to be and to live the lives you've called us to live. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.